Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Who is afraid of the big, bad Rishi? He's the Prime Minister, of course, since Liz Truss self-immolated. Tragically, not just setting her own premiership on fire, but crashing the economy as well with the consequences millions of people will have to, I'm afraid, be stuck with, obviously, for a very long time to come. 12 long years of Tory rule. Every single Prime Minister, every single Tory leader has ended, I would say, in quite spectacular fashion. Beginning, of course, with David Cameron after the Brexit referendum. Uh, Theresa May obviously called a snap election, which then fatally wounded her when she threw away her majority. Uh, Boris Johnson convulsed in scandal. Uh, Liz Truss, I mean, <laughs> don't think we need to we need to go through those glory weeks. And then, of course, now Rishi Sunak. So Rishi Sunak, is he going to book the trend? Because every single Tory leader has in the last... Because it's often said, all political careers end in failure. That's a, a cliche. But I wouldn't say failure really sums up just how badly things have gone for every single Conservative leader. A little stat like I keep throwing around. You probably heard it because I keep using it over and over again. But 30% nearly of Britain's post-war Prime Ministers... <laughs> So that's 77 years since World War II ended. 30% of Britain's post-war prime ministers have been uh, in number 10 since 2016. I mean, that is absolute, with no change in government. So the same party stayed in power. And yet 30% of all our post-war prime ministers have been in charge in just six years. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, so a, a time, obviously, of great political uh, instability. My argument is that the reason we have this political instability actually isn't a Tory psychodrama. A lot of political reporting treats politics as a soap opera, very EastEnders and, you know, drama, who's up, who's down. I would say that the thread throughout the kind of disastrous failures of all the prime ministers is an economic model which stops producing rising living standards. So if you think about the David Cameron, Brexit referendum, a lot of academic research suggests that Obviously, 52% of people voted to leave. That includes lots of people who might be affluent or people who are struggling. But the argument of the, the academic research has suggested that what got it over the line was a protracted squeeze in living standards and areas most hit by austerity were more likely to vote for leave. And that's what got it over the edge. And that's what destroyed David Cameron. Theresa May destroyed in a snap general election. Again, public anger over stagnating living standards. Labour was seen to have the best answers to that. That's what fatally wounded her, of course. Boris Johnson, you might think, well, that was just Pygate, wasn't it? No, I don't agree with that. I think that obviously was a big proximate cause and the general scandals that engulfed him. But actually, um, in the earlier part of this year, as the cost of living crisis began to really bite, that also dragged Tory polling down. Um, and that fed into a, a sense that a lot of Tory MPs felt, well, is he really the electoral asset we thought he was? Um, Liz Truss doesn't really need saying. So Rishi Sunak now is, it, it looks like, going for austerity 2.0 after the country has already suffered the longest squeeze in living standards since Emperor Napoleon 
That was quite a while ago, by the way. Um, so what, you know, two years till an election, more cuts. There's nothing left to hack away in terms of meat from public services and the welfare state. Um, what's What does this mean for Rishi Sunak? Is, it, is he just going to go the same way as all these predecessors, destroyed, as I've said, by an economic model, which has now led, led to... It was said after the financial crash, will we have a lost decade of living standards? It's now a generation. People are set uh, by 2026 to be poorer or as as well off as they were in 2008 before the financial crash hit. Absolutely unprecedented in our modern history. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Richie Sunak. We're going to talk about maybe he's an electoral asset. Maybe he's going to turn the Tory fortunes all around. Should Keir Starmer be worried? Uh, what does it mean for Labour? What does it mean for Labour's positioning? We're going to talk, of course, about Suella Braverman. I've done a lot of videos about Suella Braverman like, this week um, in terms of the scandal uh, involving, obviously, her just putting confidential government emails from her private Gmail address, uh, leaking stuff. But obviously, that is important, but we do need to talk about the horror that she represents, which is, of course, the scapegoating and demonising and persecution of migrants and refugees, including particularly horrific uh, story, which we're going to talk about. Um, before, as ever, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. Hit the notification bell. That'd be lovely. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash unjoes84. That keeps the show on the road. We're doing, as you notice, we've been doing videos every day recently. So we're going to try and keep that going, keep that momentum going. Uh, we've hit 200,000 subscribers. Very exciting. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, and before I bring Michael Walker in, very exciting. Um, I, what was I going to say? I was going to say something important there before we're going to bring him in. No, I can't remember what I was going to say. I'll just bring him in. Hey, Michael, how you doing, mate? Yeah. I'm disappointed. I really want to hear the important thing now. I'm feeling very... Really, um, but it was there in my head. It was in my head, Michael. I had it there and then it just went. Very interesting opening thoughts about whether this is all due to the, the, the sort of economic model not working anymore. Lots of food for thought. I was thinking that would be more, you know, the way you'd expect that to more obviously work would be if you've got parties constantly changing right because you get prime ministers elected and they can't fix the model they can't fix the economic model and make it work for people the fact that it's sort of like all been internal tory psychodrama makes it a more well, complicated argument but it's still an interesting one yeah i mean i suppose the issue is that because i don't want to go into generational conflict stuff but because i don't like it i think it's toxic but it's obviously the, the case that the base of the Tory electoral base is our pensioners who represent mm. about one in four voters. So that's their solid base. And they've, they've been protected because of the triple lock pension correctly, which I support. Um, but because they've, they've got social democracy basically preserved for them and they tend to be socially conservative, but they've been protected from the economic shocks of the last period. So what's kind of hit, what's caused political instabilities from outside that core? Isn't it? Well, except they disproportionately voted for Brexit, didn't they? That they did. Generation. But then again, people, I mean, Brexit, you know, millions of people in their 40s and 50s voted for Brexit. Mm. That's the point. Like, what got it over the edge? That's that's what the research was asking. Because obviously you got mm. billionaires voting for Brexit. But what got it over the edge? What got it over the line? It's the same thing with Trump. Sort of those those key swing voters that got him over the edge were like economic discontent voters, even if that wasn't sort of the main reason most people voted for him. Exactly. So you'd say, look at 2016, um, Trump had a very substantial lead for people over people who earned over a certain amount of money, very rich people, and he lagged behind amongst poorer voters. But what was interesting was the swing amongst poorer mm. voters, poorer white voters. 
So that's what you'd have to look at. It's like, why did a load of poorer white voters who voted for Bama vote for Trump? So, yeah, that's... Anyway, me and Michael... How are you feeling today, Michael? Feeling fresh? Fresh enough. Me and Michael... Do, out I, not look, do I not look fresh? No, you, you look... You're a very handsome chap. The, the left is blessed with handsome Adonises like yourself. Uh, before I continue, look at my T-shirt. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, very nice. It is the Brazilian election today. Yeah, it's the Brazilian Intense. election. We will have coverage tomorrow. Uh, been speaking to David Adler of the Progressive International, who people might know, but uh, very. Uh, but I'm a bit worried about it, Michael, because the uh, what happened last time in the first round is Bolsonaro support was vastly underestimated. Well, it was underestimated mm. by the polling, um, and then, uh, uh, but Lula's was actually quite accurate. The polling, so, but it's just the polling is narrowed where it's about one to two percentage points lead for Lula, which isn't really. It's not the kind of. Not the kind of a yeah, Bolsonaro was underestimated in the first round, and now the polling is sort of 53 47. That's not looking great, is it? No, it's the biggest, oh, yeah, well, biggest uh, political yeah. story in the world right now is probably Brazil, not not Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. But obviously, we no, but we're gonna, but we're, we're talking about that. <laughs> but we talk um, about what we know, yeah, exactly. Oh, I forgot, yeah, uh, sorry, just quickly, yeah, super chats, for example. I'll read you all out at the end, obviously. Thank you very much. Keep sending them in, and I'll throw them at Michael. Okay, Michael, let's just start, right, let's start with, so Labour are still ahead in the polling by a very substantial margin, um, although for a long time there was this meme because under, commentators, including Tony Blair, during the Corbyn years said uh, any other leader would be 20 points ahead, and that became a meme taken by Corbyn supporters when Labour were behind or didn't have a big poll lead, but then Labour were like 30 points ahead, so then all the Starbuck people were like, ha, 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 Corbyn people, Stop, yeah, where's your meme now? But then Labour's lead dropped at 17 points. And people were like, the meme lives. Um, but <laughs> Labour clearly have a very, very big uh, polling lead indeed. Um, but underlying polling is always very interesting because it it, it helps suggest, it, it often filters into the headline polling later on. So here's what might worry Labour. Who would be best at handling the economy? So this is opinion. Tories, 33%. Labour on 29%. Uh, BMG, another pollster. Who do you trust more in the economy? Richie Sunak on 41%. Keir Starmer on 30%. And best prime minister, Sunak leads Starmer in the best PM poll. Richie Sunak on 31%. Keir Starmer on 27%. Now, on the economic polling, so after Black Wednesday in 1992, when the Britain was ejected from the um, European rate mechanism, ERM. Um, that obviously, that was seen as late, the Tories threw away their economic credibility. But actually, by 1997, the Tories were ahead on the economy. And, and the Tory poll, uh, the, the Tory slogan was, Britain is booming, don't let Labour ruin it. But Labour still won a landslide. So you don't actually have to be ahead on the economy in order to win an election. I suppose what might worry me is that, well, the Tories gradually clawed back economic credibility just because there was a boom in Britain in the 90s, un completely unsustainable. It was a financial, you know, lead boom. We know how that ended. But what I suppose worries me is Liz Trust just crashed the economy. That They just crashed the economy, like, the other week. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They, it wasn't like, oh, we're getting years, and then we've got, like, lots of economic growth, and then we can go, well, we did have Black Wednesday, but we do have a booming economy now. Yeah, what, what do you think about that? I think 
at this point in time, it could just be politics as vibes. I mean, like Rishi Sunak is getting a big, broad welcome from the mainstream press. He's not Liz Truss. He's you know a, a, a responsible, competent Tory. And they've been waiting a while for this. And people associate him with furlough. People associate him with, um, well, some, some decent economic policies over the course of the pandemic. So I think, you know, potentially I think Rishi Sunak, we trust him. He's a fairly trusted figure. Um, as you say, I think when they start making the tough choices, well, I don't want to, don't want to repeat their language, but when they start following through on what they're calling tough choices, um, then right, might change their mind. <laughs> when he's got to make, he's got to find thirty billion pounds of cuts. So unfortunately for um, Rishi Sunak, when he uh, does the inevitable, the responsible thing, and cuts our public services to the bone, and maybe that will dampen his popularity. No, of course, I'm. I am being ironic. He does not need to make any cuts whatsoever, but he probably will. And I would hope and pray that that would damage his uh, economic uh, popularity. Otherwise, I would feel very depressed about everything, really. There's a big bugbear of mine because uh, last week the BBC um, did, I've done several videos on this now because I'm obsessed, uh, where a BBC correspondent said um, that they had to make, that he will have to make spending cuts uh, because of the economic the economic situation, he has to make spending cuts and tax rises. And then they responded to the complaints and, and gaslit everyone who went, no, we didn't say what you heard we said. It didn't happen. Very frustrating. Yeah, so, I mean, on that though, I mean, what? so we're going to have now, we're going to have this autumn statement. But do you think the worry might be that they've gone in hard and that there's going to be cuts and now everyone's going to be these big swinging cuts? But it's been suggested that Jeremy Hunt, instead of like under David Cameron and George Osborne, um, austerity was 80% spending cuts, 20% tax rises. And they're looking at maybe 50% spending cuts and 50% tax rises. So there'll be all this hype about spending cuts and maybe then they won't be as bad and they'll push the spending cuts till after the next election and then use that in a general election to go, well, tough choices have to be made. Does Labour have any credibility on them? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I keep reading this story. There's going to be a trap for Keir Starmer because Rishi Sunak is going to promise a load of cuts and then Labour are going to have to fall into line and say, oh, yeah, we will do the same cuts. It seems a bit bizarre to me. I mean, I think if you were at Labour, you'd just say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. I mean, obviously, if, if if the big story is that Rishi Sunak is going to sort of in some, you know, four-dimensional chair say vote Labour and something will happen like when we gave you Liz Truss, which I think would essentially yeah. be the argument, right? You say, like, we've got this big costed plan. It's restored confidence in the markets. If you let Keir Starmer in and he doesn't promise to do all the spending cuts I'm promising to do, then you could have another, you know, brief financial crash and your mortgages will go up again. I mean, if 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 Keir Starmer wants to take that seriously, he could take the numbers at face value and say, no, look, I'm going to stick to your fiscal plan, but I'm going to do it via all tax increases on the rich. I mean, that would probably be quite a politically smart thing to do, whether that's something Keir Starmer's going to be willing to do, I don't know. But, I, you know, I would be, I, 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 my expectations have tended to be low for Keir Starmer and then they often end up, um, you know, reality ends up being worse than what I expected. But I would be very disappointed if Labour went into the next general election promising spending cuts after, what, by then it will be 14 years of austerity. So it, I, I, it, I wouldn't put it past them, but if they were to fall into this, if they're like playing sensible, smart politics, they say, no, we really want to get elected. That means we're going to agree to Rishi Sunak's spending cuts would be a surprise galaxy brain move, I think.
But on that, I mean, oh, I should say we've got a super chat here from PR. Important Insta-related question. Do you believe in life after love? Um, I think the reason for that is me and Michael were in the Admiral Duncan last night and we sang along to a drag queen singing Cher's classic song, Believe. Uh, thank you, PR, for that. Um, yeah, so what the Tories are very adept at, though, is turning crises, which should actually, you think, be devastating or bad for them, into crises that hit the opposition. Take the financial crash. In theory, at the time, people looked at that like, well, neoliberalism's really sunk itself this time, hasn't it? How's it going to get out of this one? The banks, obviously, uh, the pillars of kind of neoliberal ideology and all the rest of it, they crashed the economy. The Tories very much associated with that ideology. Um, but what the Tories did is they turned that crisis into a crisis of public spending um, and were like, well, you know, we're in this mess because Labour spent too much money. Um, and that's that formed the basis for austerity. And then people blamed austerity on the Labour government rather than the Tories for a long time. And what they're doing this time, I think you can see this with James Forsyth, who is a political correspondent, who is also the best friend of Rishi Sunak in our totally normal media ecosystem. And his wife was the former spokesperson for Rishi Sunak and also Boris Johnson before she resigned in disgrace or not in disgrace. But, you know what I mean. but what the, what he suggested is what the Tories will do is use the Liz Truss experiment and go, it, you know, if you do reckless economic plans like our leader who, who we had ourselves, then this is what happens to the economy. And that will happen with Keir Starmer because he'll spend loads of money um, which in ways which the markets won't like. And the same thing will happen. So do you see what I mean? They'll turn their Tory crisis into something to bludgeon Labour with. Yeah, I mean, I think that will be the move. And I think that's, you know, the trap that's apparently being set by Rishi Sunak saying we're going to promise spending cuts after the next general election. And that's how we, uh, you know, keep the, the books in in order. I suppose it, it should be harder, like, than... Because the financial crisis, I totally agree with you, that should have been a crisis of neoliberal capitalism and the Tories made it into a crisis of overspending when it had nothing to do with public spending whatsoever. But Labour had been in power for 11 years by the time the crash happened, right? So at least in people's heads, you've got Labour have been in charge for 11 years, then the crash happened. Maybe it's got something to do with Labour. I think it is going to be harder for Rishi Sunak to stand up at the next general election and blame Labour for any kind of economic woes when they've been in power for 14 years. Because I think that's a very strong argument from, from Labour, isn't it? Like, you cannot give a sort of critique of the fragility of the British economy if you've been in government for 14 years, which the Tories will have been by the time the next general election comes around. So as you know, I, I, it, it, it seems possible, but it does seem like a harder task for the Conservatives to blame this one on the left than to blame than, than they managed to to blame the 2008 one on the left because you know Labour have been in power, but they haven't been in power this time around. And it's also worth you know how is this different from austerity? Because obviously, you know, living standards. We talk a lot about living standards being appalling at the moment for many people in society. You know. The worst period or the most depressing period was sort of 2010 to, to 2016, the high point of austerity. I think that the worry for the Conservatives now is austerity was always based on, you know, you make the first, you make the bottom 30% of society poorer. Um, they're probably not going to vote Tory anyway. They might not vote at all. So it's fine to cause that pain. Um, now, the worry for the Tories is that mortgage rates, interest rates, um, inflation, these all hit people, a much broader section of society and lots of people who would be natural Tory voters. So I think they're going to desperately be trying to get mortgage rates down, desperately trying to get um, inflation down before the next general election. But it's going to be harder for this crisis to sort of not be felt by a much broader section of the population than austerity was. Should we hear from Michael Gove? I 
cannot imagine anything I would rather do. When we last met, you made it very clear that your belief was that benefits should rise in line with inflation, as Boris Johnson promised. Should they? Well, we're going to have some very, very tough decisions to make in the autumn statement. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Rishi's whole instinct, mm -hmm. everything he's done in politics, is to seek to protect the vulnerable. So he just loves the poor so much, Rishi Sunak. That's what I really associate him. motivates him. Yeah. Really, in the morning, it's like, how can I make the life of people who are struggling that little bit better today? Do you know who he reminds me of, Michael Dove? Francis Uruquat from um, House of Cards. Do you know what I mean? I've never seen it. I can't. How can you? I know. I've got nothing Michael. to say about this. That's worrying. Um, well, anyway, he does remind me of him. Um that's so this okay. So there's a big debate at the moment about obviously the triple lock pensions and will the Tories um stop that rising in line with inflation? Uh, and what that would mean for the Tories. I mean, that for me would seem kind of suicidal that they're in a very difficult political space and they start attacking their own core vote. Um, but then the other is obviously the issue of benefit uprating. It was interesting actually the debate in Liz Truss's cabinet over that because Jacob Rees Mogg actually um opposed not increasing benefits in line with inflation so you even have tory right wingers on on that side but what what do you think i mean do you think the trip what do you think pe pensions benefits what do you think they'll do yeah it's interesting you know the argument of sort of like jacob rees mogg saying they should rise in line with inflation i suppose the the electoral argument says they should not increase benefits in line with inflation but they should increase pensions in line with inflation because their voter base is, is is pensioners more than it is working age people on low incomes so you know that's one argument for doing that I mean all the charities are terrified about benefits not being increased in line with inflation because benefits have already been eroded dramatically over the past 12 years and people are already on the bread line so that's going to push so many people into destitution I mean obviously you know both should rise in line with inflation otherwise you know pensioners don't deserve a pay cut people on benefits don't deserve a pay cut that means they have to rise in line with inflation. Um, I've got no idea what they will do. I suppose the Jacob Rees-Mogg argument, which I was going to sort of go on to, I'm worried they'll say, look, we were, we thought not rising benefits in line with inflation was a problem under Liz Truss because Liz Truss was giving tax cuts to the rich and you can't give tax cuts to the rich as well as giving cuts to people's benefits. I mean, they did it actually under austerity, but apparently that's all been memory hold by everyone. But under Liz Truss, it was seen as, you know, politically difficult to do that now with Rishi he can do a sort of we're all in it together yes tough decisions I've recognized that the rich can't have it as good as they were going to have it under Liz Truss and I've recognized that these this pain is going to be, have to be felt across society obviously there will be sort of cushioning their own voter base so you know that there is a cynical way for them to make the argument that it's consistent to have raised concerns about not rating benefits in line with inflation under Truss and say Oh, the situation has changed um, now that Rishi Sunak is in charge. But it's, yeah. What do you think? Do you think they will or do you think they won't? Well, by the way, I can just see there's a big debate about why I'm drinking so much water. It's the secret of eternal life. There's literally, there's about 20 comments about me, how much water I'm drinking, or some slightly hungover. Um, well, I think I I would be really, if they, if they don't increase, if they go for the triple lock, that is such an open goal for the Labour Party because mm. what's kept Labour out of power is the fact it has no inroads amongst pensioners or very little. I mean, it's astonishing what's happened in British politics in terms of demographic polarisation because it is without precedent. So, I mean, I've said this over and over again, so people are probably quite bored of it, hearing it by now. But in 
1983, young people voted for Margaret Thatcher. She had a nine-point lead amongst 18 to 24-year-olds. So when people go, well, young people are left-wing and then they become right-wing with age, that's not actually borne out by the facts. You know, in the mid-80s, Reagan's most enthusiastic support base were young people. In the 60s, the most pro-Vietnam War generation were the young, the most anti-war generation were the old. They'd seen the horror of war, to be fair, and a lot of young people maybe were idealising it. But so, so what's happened, you know, normally in this country, you had class, definitely divisions. But if your parents voted for a political party, you were very likely to vote the same way. And what's happened in particularly the 2010s is younger people now, you know, Labour Party's hegemonic. I mean, we're talking like even before these poll leads, you know, 60 percent plus. And then there were all the young people voting for the SNP and the Greens on top of that. The Tories are fringe political party. Amongst pensioners, though, 17% supporting the Labour Party. I mean, absolute fringe party stuff. Um, so obviously, you know, the reason for that is just because pensioners have been protected. They've got a social democracy, so they vote for neoliberalism for everybody else, I'm afraid to say. That's what's happened, isn't it? Older people have, have social democracy, correctly. Everyone else has neoliberalism. So the people with who are protected by social democracy vote for the neoliberal party and the people who suffer neoliberalism vote for the social democratic party. So obviously if they start on picking social democracy for pensioners, then, you know, some of them are going to start peeling off. There's already some of them. I mean, yeah, it's, it's important not to not be too sweeping uh, in one's generalizations, but I mean, I'm thinking of that, that there's a clip on ITV, wasn't there? Um, of I think she was a 65 year old woman who was, getting up super early to do a cleaning job, coming back too scared to put her toaster on because she was worried about the electricity bill. So pension of poverty is a, a real thing. The reason we had the triple lock pension, you know, which which has, um, you know, increases pensions in line with either inflation or wages or 2.5%, isn't it? So it's a much, much stronger protection than any other um, element of the welfare state has. I mean, one of the reasons it came in is because the state pension was much lower in the UK than it was elsewhere. So that was almost to sort of just bring it in line with the standards mm. elsewhere. I suppose that with pensioners, the issue isn't, you know, that they've been, they've had these gold plated pensions. It's that if you own a property, then your house has probably quadrupled in price over the past 10, 15 years. So it's a sort of like asset based Keynesianism where the welfare state is your house has got very, very expensive. And that means that and if, the, if the welfare state Come isn't on. keeping up, then you can remortgage your house. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if you don't have, if you end up older, without a house then you are going to feel those sort of straining public services really badly on just on labor terms of, because at the moment as we see you know the, you know labor had a big opportunity clearly but they did despite i mean i would we're not Keir Starmer fans either of us i think just probably just put, just to surprise everyone but there was at least some semblance of a vision articulated by labor conference i would say uh partly uh, handed to them on a plate by Liz Truss, which, and they started to, you know, in his conference speech, Keir Starmer flirted with what I would call basic class politics, which is they're cutting taxes for the top 1%, but everybody else is suffering the consequences. Um, and, you know, they started having some kind of policies, which kind of maybe fleshed that out a bit. Um, I'm just wondering that they haven't really sort of built on that since conference. Like haven't, even though, I mean, obviously you might argue they've kind of stood to one side, don't interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. Maybe there's a part of that. But I suppose the problem is um, Keir Starmer is sort of, you know, his big shtick was dull competence, basically. But Rishi Sunak, even though it's astonishing, because by the time he'd finished being chancellor, he's very unpopular, Rishi Sunak. 
he went from the most popular politician in the country to being quite unpopular. But now actually people think he's been a good chancellor, even though he's a terrible chancellor. But I mean, the polling has turned around for him. So now he's got the kind of dull competence aura. And if Labour aren't hammering a clear, distinct vision, if they're making a dividing line competence, I don't think that works with Rishi Sunak anymore. But I don't think they're articulating a clear economic vision anymore in the way they start as a bit conference. Well, I suppose at conference it was just very comfortable for them, wasn't it? Because Liz Truss just made it easy for Labour. You know, if you if you think about their response to the mini budget, it was basically it's kind of all fine apart from that top rate of tax, which we would keep the same. Um, I think they also said the corporation tax would not be increased. Um, so she gave them just some really easy targets, so they didn't have to think that hard to have a class politics vision because Liz Truss's vision was so clearly class warfare for the rich and kind of everyone could see that. So Keir Starmer, again, was almost moving behind public opinion. Everyone hated that budget. He could sort of just take the most universally hated parts of it and say he was against them. Rishi Sunak is now going to make that slightly more hard. They're going to have to think a bit harder and potentially be a bit less reactive because I suppose the reason politics has been quite easy for them under Liz Truss, they haven't really articulated much of a vision of what they do. They've just said, we wouldn't do this crazy thing that Liz Truss is doing. Rishi Sunak's presumably going to do less crazy things. So they're going to have to articulate more of an alternative if they want to put clear water between themselves and, and him. I mean, I think they're going to have to start talking about taxing the rich. That If you want to seem like you're economically responsible in the sense that you, know, you don't think there's a magic money tree or whatever, you're going to have to say, we're tougher than the Tories when it comes to this. And we're tougher than the Tories because we're going to tax the rich who've had an easy ride for a long time. And we're going to oppose any cuts to any public services because people do not want cuts to public services right now. Everyone can see they're crumbling around them. So I think they should have as a red line. The last thing we want to do is cut public services even more. In fact, we want to fund them more. I mean, that was what Tony Blair was promising, right? He was going to fund public services more than they had been before. Whereas I don't even hear that particularly clearly from from the Conservatives. Got distracted. Um, argu- yeah, arguably, Labour don't have a choice politically, actually, to do what you just said, because if we think about like George Osborne 2010 onwards, actually, the cost of borrowing was very low. It was a real wasted, terrible opportunity. The the markets basically were saying, like, yeah, borrow to invest. And, and the whole basis of austerity, they were like, well, if we don't do austerity, Britain's credit rating will be slashed and then the cost of borrowing will soar. British credit rating was slashed in 2013 by Standard and Poor, and the and the cost of the guilt actually went down. The cost of borrowing went down after that, so it had no impact. So the whole thing was a myth. But now the cost of borrowing has clearly gone up. There's anticipation, market anticipation of further um, in, uh, rises in interest rates, and there's inflation. So actually, now there is actually a significant chance that if you make, for example, big spending commitments without funding them, that you could get an adverse market reaction. So either Labour go into an election doing austerity, I mean, in which case, you know, why bother voting for them, really, uh, as a dividing line. Uh, There's no dividing line then. Um, Or they say they're going to do public investment, but without increasing taxes on the rich, which then doesn't look economically credible. And a lot of people would actually credibly say could create a market reaction. Or they have to commit to public investment, but they can only do that by increasing taxes on on the rich. That's the literally the only that's the only political option they have to, uh, available to them. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray Five in One gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And it would be incredibly popular. You know, yeah, no, might, no, I suppose it might, it might upset the relationship that Keir Starmer is trying to develop with News International. Um, but <laughs> I think that will, that will be the big... Do we please the newspapers or do we give uh, a policy which is going to be vastly more popular with the public, which is the rich need to pay their way? But also rich donors. They quite like rich donors as well, I would say. Who, who don't I suppose like. a lot of the policy was based on that. But I think there are, you know, there are sections of the rich, you know, the more liberal end of it, who do realise that they've had an easy ride for a long time and that, you know, a couple percentage points on their taxes is probably necessary to maintain the social contract that we have in society i don't think that's sort of like the the collective vision of capital but you know i'm I'm not sure that the donors to the labor party would be blocking things such as wealth taxes i would i think they'd be more concerned about the the former Tory donors coming over who probably wouldn't be very keen on that but Tad Camwell actually mm. just asked, this is interesting, is there any polling on how much the social care scandal during the 2017 election changed voting patterns among all the voters? This is interesting because I think there's this now, I'd say, myth of 2017, which is basically the Tories just did a catastrophic election campaign. And that's why um, Labour managed to take away their um majority but actually the Tory polling didn't go down that much during the general election of 2017 and under Theresa May they got a similar share of the vote as Margaret Thatcher it's just Labour at the same time got a similar share of the vote as Tony Blair in 2001 so they both got what would be landslide victories for them if the other party hadn't done as well as they did um so what actually I think the polling suggests because actually you know what really happened is Labour clawed votes from lots of other sources um but actually, uh, the Labour so it's always kept their support amongst pensioners uh, largely. But I think voter turnout went down amongst pensioners. That's so more than a big defection of older voters. That's what. That's what. If that's one of the things I hurt uh, the Tories, I want to hear from Michael Gove again because I I really love him. Yeah, some people listening might be questioning, uh, you know, if this is you know, a government committed to national security, uh, given that Suella Braverman you know, resigned after emailing these confidential papers from a personal email account uh, to someone outside the government and also copying in the wrong person as well. A week later, she was back. You know, you take a week off work if you've got the flu, not if you've con- committed a security breach. Was she seen ever pointed her? Yes, uh, we do take uh, security issues incredibly seriously. That's why, again, I have to be cautious in responding to the point that uh, you understandably made about uh, uh, Liz's phone. Uh, And it's because we take them seriously that we have uh, strict protocols in place that govern how information should be shared and with whom it should be shared. 
Suella is a first-rate, front-rank politician. Uh, she acknowledged that a mistake had been made. Uh, she is working hard in order to ensure that our borders can be made more secure and that policing is more effective. Uh, and she's a valued member of the cabinet and someone whom I admire and like. Uh, you say that she's an effective... Is this time, I mean, how much do you think, is it filtering through? I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I would imagine it just looks a bit dodgy because I think everyone, anyone who's paid attention knows Suella Braverman was put there by um, Rishi Smack because she's a hard right Tory. Her endorsement for him helped keep Boris Johnson off the ballot paper and therefore the members voting Boris Johnson back in. That's what happened there. I mean, do you think, what do you think about this whole scandal? Is it, how bad is it for the Tories? In terms of will people notice, I don't know, I suppose what Rishi Sunak wants to do is return some idea of some vision of competence to the Conservative Party. And I suppose Suella Bradman does to some degree undermine that. He clearly decided that having the right of the Conservative Party on side was more important than that. I think probably if he can prevent a civil war in the Conservative Party by the next time, you know, by the time the election comes around, he will look a lot more competent than his predecessors. Because I think what people notice is the instability more than any particular psychodrama that's going on within the party I mean it's fun I, I did think in the question you know like that she sent it to the wrong person it's sort of the funnier element of that story where it just who then snitched on her who then snitched on her well because it was the wrong person he, you know if, obviously yeah. if, you, if you're CCing your supposedly secret email to the wrong person that's a, a bit of a faux pas um for a home secretary I doubt people care that much about this story but I suppose yeah, I can't. I can't see it. Well, I suppose also Rishi Sunak's probably thinking, look, people are worried about economic competence at the moment. She's Home Secretary. If she messes up, what's it going to do? It's going to mean a more miserable time for some asylum seekers, which it already is, by the way, and the story I think we're going to talk about later. But he's hoping that that doesn't have much cut through with the public anyway. I mean, Labour are trying to make this about national security. I mean, the email was uh, a, a, about an internal policy it was about policy on migration i think and how that feeds into obr estimations so it was sort of her emailing a backbench right-wing tory about policy before it was announced which is why it was, i think it was market sensitive so it wasn't actually a national security issue um so i'm not sure how far it will run uh to that extent you know I, is she a threat to our security i don't know probably not is she a threat to vulnerable minorities absolutely well, I've got to ask about that. I just noticed people with the comments asking when the Michael Walker calendar drops, just letting you know. Um, Sorella Braverman ignored legal warnings uh, from the Home Office that she's breaking the law by keeping asylum seekers in overcrowded, disease-ridden processing centres for too long. Uh, so, I mean, this is awful. People, you know, Ill a breakout of diphtheria, uh, scabies, gruesome stuff. I mean, that's the human consequences of what, of what the so-called culture war is all about, isn't it? Which is clearly trying to tap into the worst instincts people have about refugees and migrants, which conveniently deflects anger away from the government and those who are in power, who are responsible for the ills of society. But that's the consequences. You just get people treated like, I was going to say treated like animals, but I think this would be regarded as cruelty to animals as well. I mean, it's, it's gruesome stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's also the victory of Nigel Farage, because, I mean, if you if you look at the story, the reason it seems I mean, it could it could just be that she's cruel and she just likes suffering. But it, it, it seems, you know, the legal advice was you can't have people staying in this detention center for 
you know, I think it's supposed to be more than 24 hours. So you've got to understand like detention centers where people are held long-term, conditions are appalling, but this place was considered even worse, you know, because you are allowed to keep someone in a detention center. I mean, indefinitely, that's one of the terrible things about sort of the practices of this country and sort of what, 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 what separates it from, from most countries in the world, which we, we, we will detain people indefinitely in, in detention. But those detention centers presumably meet some standards that this one didn't because this was supposed to just be a holding center. The legal advice was you were going to have to procure some sort of long-term um, accommodation for these people while you deal with their claims. I think claims at the moment take 488 days to be processed because of the Tory cuts to the you know, the legal system. Um, obviously, judges um, have, to be in, have to be involved, legal aid, although I, I imagine they probably cut legal aid by a vast amount for, for potential asylum seekers. But anyway, that system is sort of grinding to a halt. And the legal advice was you were going to have to put up people in, and I hate this phrase that, you know, putting up people in hotels, because it's not, mm. you're not giving people a life of luxury. The reason you have to put up people in hotels is because the state has been completely, you know, torn back. It's not that there's loads of sort of social housing, state accommodation, which is available, but we're deciding, oh, no, these people deserve the best of the best. So let's send them to hotels instead of sending them um, to some kind of state accommodation. The reason we send them to hotels is because we don't have any other forms of of public sector accommodation and yeah these aren't going to be five-star hotels anyway i mean if they were it wouldn't outrage me but this is a nigel farage thing because you'll remember sort of last summer and i think the summer before he was constantly on his you know taking his video cameras to hotels and saying how many migrants are staying here um how much is it costing for all of them to be here so suella braverman decided i i'm i'm not going to send any migrants to hotels so she keeps them illegally in places which aren't fit for human habitation she thinks that's sort of checkmate nigel farage but actually it's, well, maybe it is, but it's causing a lot of suffering to a lot of people. It's, it's interesting at the moment, my, my brother took in uh, a Ukrainian family um, and obviously refu Ukrainian refugees have received widespread public sympathy, obviously, and, and haven't been treated badly in the, in, in, the, in the way that obviously other refugees have been treated. Um, but it's interesting at the moment, just trying to get them proper adequate housing is actually impossible. And actually, they, they, it seems as though the only way to do it is to um, like make them, uh, to, to claim that a irreversible breakdown in relations has happened between them uh, and therefore make them homeless. And then they go to a homeless shelter and then get, ha then get an emergency housing. It's absolutely mm. ridiculous. So that's even with refugees who actually do have, uh, you know, technically government and, and, and public, public sympathy. Um, yeah, I mean, the other part, the, I mean, what, I think it'd be interesting what's going to happen because the, re the other reason Suella Braverman's there, and you can see this as well with Kemi Badenoch, is, um, if they're going to do economic austerity again, austerity, which is obviously very unpopular, that's when cultural stuff really comes into its own, doesn't it? Because, um, the, the, the way of kind of, you know, when you're making very unpopular cuts, um, and public opinion has shifted on austerity because austerity had widespread acquiescence for a while because people thought there was no alternative. They blamed the last Labour government wrongly. Um, but this time round, people are like, we've had years of this now. And actually, you did this because you messed up the economy. This is all on you. So actually, I think they're going to ratchet up stuff, whether it be refugees, migrants, trans people, which is interesting. They only because that for a long time, transphobia was a thing which circulated in the media and this kind of well-connected cult on Twitter, largely, but it's, it's been taken up by right-wing Tory politicians with gusto, I'd say, in the last few months, actually. But that's what's going to happen, isn't it? Because what they'll do then is they think they can torture the opposition because they think the opposition will wrap, they actually bet on this correctly, will wrap themselves up in knots. 
because the, the, that Labour won't be, will be too scared on trans rights or on refugees and migrants that the, because the Labour coalition includes people who think that we should have a progressive position and others who clearly don't. So they think it will cause a civil war within the Labour Party if they focus on that. And then the debate shifts away from cuts onto who can be more cruel to trans people and refugees. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be the strategy, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at Rishi Sunak's hires, that seems to be what's happening. Jeremy Hunt, you've got sort of this vision of competence. Obviously, he's going to cause lots of misery for lots and lots of people. Then you've got Suella Braverman um, in the home office. Kemi Badenoch is Minister of Equalities, isn't she? So, yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. Will it work? I suppose the difficulty is, and I think, you know, Keir Starmer's response to some of this so far, which I think has been fine, the more effective end is, you know, inflation is this much. Unemployment, well, unemployment isn't high at the moment, actually. Inflation is this high. People's incomes are falling. Um, public services are at collapse. Why are we? You know, the reason they're bringing up this is is very transparent. I think if you if you give that kind of answer, um, that's probably the best way to get to the next general election. I would have thought to say let's leave this, let's leave this to the experts. There are many people working in the NHS and working in all of these. Um, various institutions who are better placed than either me or Rishi Sunak to talk about trans healthcare. Let's just make sure everyone's supported. We're listening to the experts and talk about the issues that actually um, we are qualified to talk about, which is the economy, essentially. I mean, it, I think the it's the economy stupid is probably how Labour should get to the next general election, not fighting on a sort of move to the right with the Conservatives. I mean, I think also, you know, people say he should be taking them head on on these issues. I suppose I am more of the sort of like try and reduce the salience of them and increase the salience of the economy as opposed to like take the Tories head on. I don't know. We might disagree with a little bit on that one. Well, no, I think even like if we're talking, I mean, look, we've got to be careful here because we're not trans, we're both cis men. But, um, you know, I don't think trans, I don't think the argument of trans people is could you talk about this more, please, in politics? Mm. <laughs> We'd like, you know, because obviously this, you know, this whole so called debate, which is really, Horrible, you know, bigoted media outlets and bigoted politicians whipping up a moral panic about a very, very small and embattled minority. And obviously, it's not in the interest of trans people to for that just to be pushed up the agenda at all. So I think you know it's the same with gay rights in the in the eighties. I don't think the argument of gay people is will Labour need to make gay rights the absolute core of their kind of mm. offer. It, it's just you know the argument is they should make they should support gay rights and then articulate a popular vision for the whole country that people can focus on rather than endless debates about the existence of a minority. Um, just finally then, just finally, because, um, you know, we both, both done, we clawed our way through this. We've done all right. Look at him. Look We're at giving ourselves face. a pass. I think so. Um, what do you see? That, I mean, we've got two years. So the election could be January uh, 2015. So, oh God, oh dear, it's a lot of life to live under a conservative government. Twenty twenty-five, January twenty twenty-five, twenty twenty-five. Sure, I doubt. I mean, if they do that, that's going to be well annoying because they they'd have to do an electoral campaign over Christmas. Could do without that, actually. Imagine that, awful. Um, mm. People might resent that. Yeah, they might resent that. What I suppose, what do you, what, I mean, the Tory, what do you think the Tory path through is? Because I think it would probably be they reduce inflation, more interest rates start to come down, um, and maybe they do some tax cut before the election and hope that Labour doesn't have a clear cut through vision. 
that's their that's their best bet, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult. I mean, it, 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 it's going to be very difficult for them to do. I mean, I, I, I suppose the obvious thing Richie Sunak needs to do is, like, the, I suppose the bare minimum for him to do, which would, you know, he would still be seen, you know, to some degree as a success, is to stop the civil war in the Conservative Party, stop instability in the economy, because I think it's going to be very difficult to sort of be increasing everyone's living standards by the next general election. But you could have, you know, compared to the chaos of Liz Charles, I think he can calm that down. And that would probably be enough for the Tories to get, you know, above 30% and then, you know, to get a respectable showing in a general election, but still lose. Potentially, you've got a sort of coalition um, government from from the Labour Party, not this storming landslide, which would be the case if there was to be a general election now. Um, yeah, I suppose, how would he actually win? I mean, I think probably your, I mean, your suggestion was, was Rishi Sunak's plan, right? So Rishi Sunak wanted to become prime minister, do the sort of some of the tough decisions now, um, and then give people a 1p tax cut on the basic rate sort of in the months before a general election and hope that would win yeah. even after sort of 12 years of a stagnating economy. I haven't seen the polling on this. I mean, obviously, I know when you ask people, would you like a 1p cut in the basic rate? They say yes. Obviously, that's popular. But I I think you can make a strong argument that sort of like tax cuts isn't what we need right now. You know, I mean, the electoral, the easy argument for Labour to make now is that we need to be taxing the rich and then support the Tories in their sort of cutting the basic rate. But I think, I mean, I I wouldn't mind my taxes being higher. My big issue is I have to pay so much money to my landlord. You know, I pay £800 a month to my landlord for not very much. The fact that he was lucky enough to get a mortgage on the flat I happen to live in. I pay way less than that to the state. And then I get the health service. I get, you know, everything. So I don't necessarily think there is actually a strong public desire to have lower taxes at the moment the, the the costs that people see that people see going up aren't their taxes the cost people see going mm. up are everything else living costs yeah living costs yeah it's a cost of living crisis um it's a coin of phrase um michael it's been a real pleasure thank you for i think holding my hand through this i would say to a large degree um <laughs> always a pleasure always happy to do that uh, it's a it's a big honor um Obviously, you all follow Navarra, so you don't need to tell anyone to do that. But Navarra, great. Well done, Navarra. Well done for being so wonderful. Thank you, Owen. Um, I'll see you soon. Uh, but lots of love, compañero. Fingers crossed for Brazil. Fingers crossed for Brazil. Yeah, that's tense. I'm actually quite worried about it, but we'll talk about it later. Um, all right, lots of love, buddy. I'll see you soon. All right, see you soon. Lovely stuff there from Michael, as per usual. Yeah, so... Lula, here we go. Um, I am doing a video tomorrow with someone from Brazil about the Brazilian election. So the latest polling was, I was a bit worried about it, actually, I have to say. They, it sort of put me in a, let me just look up quickly. It, it was too close for comfort, I would say, if I'm going to be brutally honest about it. Yeah, I mean, what's the latest poll say? That one's, that's a slightly better one, but oh dear, oh no. Oh, oh, final Brazilian poll aggregate, Bolsonaro 50%. Oh, no, that's that's an early one. No, sorry, I don't want to panic everyone. Let's just, I, I'm going to come up with this quick. Oh, here we go. Last poll for the election, Lula 52%, down one, Bolsonaro 48% plus one. That's a little close for comfort, isn't it? If we're going to be honest about it, I would be slightly concerned about that. Just because Bolsonaro, I mean, the reason maybe it's going to be okay is Bolsonaro's support 
was underestimated last time round, but only at the expense, really, of the other opposition candidates standing in the first round, whilst Lula's polling was kind of pretty much accurate. So that should hopefully mean in this context, maybe that's going to be okay. But I don't know, and I'm too worried about it to call that one, if I'm honest about it. It would be amazing, obviously, you know, Latin America has shifted quite dramatically to the left over the last few years, having shifted to the right before that and shifted to the left before that. Um, and, you know, it will mean Latin, if Brazil is, you know, Lula, the progressive candidate wins, then Latin America will be dominated by very progressive um, governments. I mean, it's frustrating, you know, the, the what's disturbing is the Bolsonaro movement, if you like, did well in in the other elections in Brazil is in for Congress and local elections and so on. So it's not like a one-off with Bolsonaro. There's a far-right movement which doesn't see its opponents as legitimate. Um, and I suppose the concern is, given how close, it, even if Lula wins, fingers crossed, is the big question marks over whether or not Bolsonaro will accept that result, will accept his defeat and what his supporters will then do. And obviously, the closer the result, the easier it will be for him to mobilise his voters against the idea that it was a legitimate result. Um, but look, we'll do a thing tomorrow. It'll be a slightly miserable video if Bolsonaro is one, I have to say, but I've committed to the video now. I can't really get out of it. Um, but we'll, we'll get through it. Um, but we'll do... You know, we'll have someone from Brazil, um, an expert uh, who can talk us through that. But, you know, Lula, pull through. Um, just to so quickly, there was a David Brata. Sorry, David, I'm not going to miss your question here. Um, what do you think the chances are Labour actually offering a vision? Are they going to sit on the fence and hope for the best? Well, I think Labour are really offering a compelling, clear vision. <laughs> No, I think, though, I mean, uh, it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky because what, what happened, obviously, is Keir Starmer reneged on his leadership bid, which I don't need to go through, but to be a kind of radical, you know, radical on domestic policy, but competent, um, and has hired a load of new Labour stooges and retreads um, and obviously gone in that direction. The problem, of course, is new Labour, um, obviously, I have a clear critique of new Labour, but at least New Labour was in a period of economic growth and rising living standards, um, which was not sustainable because it was the financial bubble. But the experiment they're trying to do here, I suppose, is New Labour in an era of massive acute social and economic crisis. Because as I've said, New Labour last time wasn't in that context. And kind of social peace was bought because of those rising unsustainable living standards. So I suppose the issue this time is... Um, Given Britain is in an absolute mess, if we're going to be honest about it, it's a disaster. If they don't offer transformative policies um, in this context, then, you know, they're just betting basically on people being so repelled by the Tories that they'll they'll embrace the Labour Party. Um, I think, you know, look, I always say the worst Labour government's better than a, the best Tory government, whatever that is. Um and, you know, they will do things which obviously are better than the Tories. They've said they'll do things like nationalise the railways. We'll see what they do about that. Um, you know, they'll, they you know, a, you know, a sovereign wealth fund, which I think, you know, a public energy company. I mean, it's not nationalisation of energy, which Keir Starmer committed to in the leadership election. 
Yeah, I suppose they have to. If you don't define yourself, you're defined by your opponents. And I think what Richie Sunak's lot are going to do is basically, as I said, use the Liz Truss experiment to attack the Labour Party, which seems completely deranged. But the whole point is they're going to go, well, this is what happens if you do an economic experiment. We have rejected the economic experiment. Rishi Sunak warned against that economic experiment. And we are providing stability. But Labour will again be a big risk. We'll go to that back to mortgages, soaring and all the rest of it. Do you want that to happen? That's what they're going to try and do. So Labour clearly, <clears throat> instead of, you know, if 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 Labour keep talking about, I mean, I find it depressing for ages. They were going about the deficit. The Tories weren't talking about the deficit. It's like, why would you make an issue like that? Which is actually when you have a discussion about the deficit, never, you know, the set of politics. That's not going to be good for Labour because people just think, oh, well, spending's bad then. Um, Labour have to offer instead a clear vision that forces the Tories into a defensive position. Because, as I've said, if things like the deficit is the front and centre of political debate, it makes Labour more defensive because they're associated with public investment. Whereas if you put a vision based on social justice as the key political debate, that forces the Tories into a defensive position because then they have to argue against social justice. So that's Labour's real challenge. And I'm skeptical i have to say about them offering a clear vision it may well be that the Tories have just completely effed it for themselves because of the disaster of the last few weeks and nothing you know people just made their minds up like this is a complete shambles and a disaster and whatever i think about rishi sanak i'm not voting tory again that's possible and i think there's a good chance of that so i think there's a significant chance labor will form the next government um but it's definitely not in the bag and the reason and you can say that for sure, is before the 1992 election, a lot of people thought that was in the bag for the Labour Party. And if you look at the polling, say, in 89, 90, 90 like 91, Labour had massive leads, huge polling leads, like quite similar to now. And they won by-elections with like ridiculous majorities. And obviously the Tories eked out a victory in 1992. So I suppose that's the question is like, will they, you know, are we going to, are we going to have a rerun of, are we going to have a rerun of that? You know, back then, you know, they got rid of Margaret Thatcher because the Tories are brutal in that sense. They were like, you may have handed us three whopping big victories in three general elections. You may have destroyed the opposition in terms of as a alternative vision for society. You've destroyed the post-war settlement. You've created a new society essentially, but look, you're not an electoral asset anymore. We're getting rid of you. We'll replace you with dull, competent John Major. Is that kind of, that's kind of what they're trying to do with Rishi Sunak, isn't it, really? They're trying to do that as a kind of, you know, be their John Major. Um, and I don't think Labour can pull, can succeed in repelling that attack unless they have a clear vision that puts the Tories on a defensive posture. Um Oh, quickly, Rachel Atwood uh, asked if uh, Rachel, yeah, Rachel, sorry, Rachel, this is uh, just, I'm speaking directly to Rachel Atwood, um, who asked if I'd put one of her friends, Igor, I think, on my show to talk gay rights in Russia. I would love to do that. Could you send me a direct message on Twitter? Because I would like to talk about LGBTQ issues in Russia at the moment. That's a very important point, I think. Um, we have surpassed 200,000 subscribers, which I'm delighted about. In just the last month 10,000 people have subscribed to the channel uh which is great we've had over one and a half million uh people watching our videos in the last 
few weeks. Um, and as I said, we've got a new a new strategy, I suppose, just doing lots of vi- little mini videos and polemics kind of each day um, on YouTube and Facebook, because obviously a lot of our audience is actually on Facebook, to be fair, and Instagram. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I think I found this therapeutic. I'm essentially using my therapy session. Um, but honestly, I, it's, it's been such an honor. Oh, my pod, the podcast is hot. Sorry, lots of people listen to this on the podcast. Not going to neglect the podcast. Um, but honestly, it, you know, uh, I am, uh, you know, it's been a huge privilege and honor to do this. I, I've, I, I learn a lot because obviously what's great about this kind of show, I think, or, or, the, or the channel is you just get to chat to really interesting, informed people about issues um, both domestically and internationally. So just it's like having your own like lecture series where you just get these great, brilliant experts on the economy, on society, uh, you know, on all sorts of issues. And, um, you know, so selfishly, I enjoy it. So I hope you all still enjoy it as well. We've got loads of videos in the next few days. Um, uh, we including an interview with someone from Brazil tomorrow, which I'm obviously, well, I said I'm excited about, I'm too nervous to be excited about it, if I'm honest with you. Um, anyway, look, cheers, everyone. Uh, press like uh, and subscribe and hit the notification bell. I keep t- meaning to tell people this. If you click the notification bell, if you go to subscribe, you can see a bell and set it so you get notifications. So then you always get a notification when you get a video. So that 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 would be helpful. Um, and leave comments. Comments are great. Um, if you leave comments, it helps the algorithm and then more people watch these videos. That's great. Um, but um, yes, uh, we'll be back live next Sunday, but with lots of stuff during the week. Um, I hope you're doing well in these unsettling times. Uh, thanks for being great. Um, I love reading your comments and I've learned a lot from you as well. So, you know, it's a team effort. Um, all right, everyone. Lots of love. Take care. I will see you very, very soon. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you found that educational, interesting, engaging, and all sorts of other things. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. You keep doing the podcast and the channel uh, with our incredible team's work, or use the support function in the description. And do subscribe and leave us a review, please. Some stars, any of those things. Um, But otherwise, lots of love. Hope you're well. Speak to you soon. 